0: Good evening and welcome to this week's SWP TV live discussion brought to you by the Socialist Workers Party. My name is Molly Doherty, I'm a member of the Socialist Workers Party in Manchester and I'm going to be hosting our discussion this evening, Trans Rights Now, Marxism, Gender and Trans Liberation. I'm really excited to be able to introduce the four amazing speakers we have lined up for you today. So first we have Anna Pope. Anna is a trans activist and member of the Socialist Workers' Party, also in Manchester. Welcome, Anna. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Next up, we have Laura Miles. Laura is the author of the fantastic book, Transgender Resistance, Socialism and the Fight for Trans Liberation, and the first openly trans person to serve on the national exec of a British trade union. Next, we have Sarah Bates. Sarah is a journalist for Socialist Worker, which is a revolutionary weekly newspaper, which you can find online at socialistworker.co.uk. And our last speaker, but by no means least, is Kelly Stubbs. Kelly is an activist with Trans Pride Liverpool, a youth worker with trans kids, and a member of the Socialist Workers' Party in Liverpool. So thanks for joining us, Kelly. And finally, I'd like to welcome all of you watching at home. We're really pleased you could tune in this evening and we want you all to be part of the discussion. So keep your comments and questions coming. We'll be reading some of them throughout this evening's show. We're streaming on four platforms this evening, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So please keep liking, commenting, and most importantly, share the stream. We want to reach as many people as possible because this is an incredibly important topic. And so it's vital that we have these discussions. Trans rights and trans lives are consistently under attack. Right-wing governments, such as the likes of Trump in America, Viktor Orban in Hungary, and the Conservative Party here, give confidence to bigots across the world who want to marginalise and threaten trans people. Last month, Liz Truss, the Minister for Women and Equalities, announced the government's plans to scrap proposed changes to the Gender Recognition Act. These changes, which would allow trans people to self-identify, have been supported by trans activists who are being ignored by the government as they continue to create an environment that is hostile to trans people. So without further ado, we're going to go to our speakers to hear what they have to say. So firstly, I'm going to bring in Anna, who, as I said before, is a trans rights activist from Manchester. Anna, can you tell us something about the current difficulties facing trans people and what difference the proposed changes to the Gender Recognition Act would make?
1: Well, under the current system, we um, have what was called you, to change your gender marker or any sort of documentation. Here, you'd have to get what we call a gender recognition gender recognition certificate. Essentially, this is a piece of paper that says you are the the gender that you identify as. Um, with the current system, you have there's quite a lot of hoops you have to jump through. You have to live um, as your desired gender for two years. You have to um, you have to go to a, pa- a gender recognition panel made up of um, professionals who have never met you and have um, mostly have never you've never interacted with in your entire t- uh, entire transition. And at this moment in time, it also costs £140 for the privilege. Um, And even at the end of that, they might turn around and just say, no, we don't um, meet our criteria to get a gender recognition certificate. And of course, you have to be over the age of 18. And the boundaries, of course, are very, very binary. So if you're non-binary, there's no no, um, use in getting this here for you. And generally, the, um, the changes would have streamlined this process for everyone. Would have made because um, in the consultation, a lot of trans trans people and people who took part in that did say that the current process is far too bureaucratic, expensive, and intrusive. And with the um, with the supposed changes as well, it meant that non-binary people could have gotten some um, representation because at this moment in time, there is a huge grey area when it comes to non-binary people. Um, when it comes to any form of sort of legal representation in form of documentation, NHS paperwork or anything, it is very sort of dependent on which person you're speaking to at the time, local governments, whether, you're, uh, whether your doctors will um, acknowledge your um, gender at all on any paperwork It is completely up to them. And with these sort of propose, these proposed changes, this would have brought things in line, and possibly, um, more than possibly, would have seen quite a lot of representation for non-binary people in there, uh, because the Gender Recognition Act itself hasn't been updated since um, two uh, thousand four, and our understanding of gender has come a quite quite far in that short space of t- in that sixteen-year period there. Um, so, so in it, many it, ways, it did need to be. Um, Updated to meet the current changes and the way that people are currently identifying in the, the wiredscape um, that is currently going on today there as well, especially with um, current che- the proposed changes there as well. Um, under the current system, if I have to go for a job interview, for example, and with background checks, though, I can't have any form of identification that has my um, that has my gender down on it, it's still down as male. So if I go to a job interview, for example I have to take my birth certificate which has my old name on it. I have to take my deed poll through as well. It's the only confirmation of my change of name and then um, and that basically means my employer knows my transgender state knows my tran- transgender status right off the bat. And you know a lot of uh, and by basically streamlining this process, this can sort this. Like I said, this would be a lot more helpful for people in my situation because, um. Sorry, sorry. I think the, my connection went a bit there. This would help people in my in my general stand because um, essentially. Um, it like it, it don't, I wouldn't have to disclose my transgender status any time I went to a job interview because previously people just um, stealthed it um, went and went moved to a new city without um, without announcing their trans um, announcing their transness and that was a feasible way. But nowadays with bigger more vis- uh, more visibility from trans people, we do need to sort this process out.
0: Thank you, Anna. I think the points you made about you know, making it easier and less um, intrusive to transition are so important. Uh, so now we're going to go to Kelly. As I said earlier as well, Kelly is an activist with Trans Pride Liverpool and a youth worker with Trans Kids. So Kelly, why do you think that the government seems to have decided to ignore the results of the GRA consultation which reportedly showed 70% in favour of the proposed changes?
2: I think the first to say is that it's absolutely outrageous the argument the, the reason they've given for um, saying that they're, not, they're going to reject the results of the consultation because too many transgender people got involved in the, in, the, in the consultation if you just imagine that was applied to an election we'd be saying that the logic of that is that we can't have the, uh, the election the results don't count that can't stand because the winning side had too many people voting for them I mean, it's just absolute nonsense. It's an insult that uh, that they're saying this is a reason why. I think particularly, given my memory of the consultation process itself, there was it was a very open and democratic uh, process. There was no sort of like uh, attempt at uh, lobbying or, or at uh, tactical voting or tactical answering of questions. There was no sort of like saying, advice to, for, to people to vote this way or that way on any given uh, questions within the consultation. It was very much approached as this is, the transgender community is not heard very often. And so this is our, our opportunity to be heard. And I think that's the spirit that people engaged in the consultation is one of wanting to be heard. And I can't think of any better reason really for, you know, to engage in something like that. I think that over the last three years though, since the announcement of the uh, results of the consultation, we've seen the warning signs that they might do that, especially after uh, it was deferred last year, that when they said that it was going to be, uh, the changes were going to, uh, the reforms were going to be implemented, they deferred that um, uh, in 2019. And I think against that background of the last three years, I think we've seen quite an intri- increase in, on an international scale of the level of transphobia that we're seeing. I think particularly, obviously, that's been led by Trump in America. And it seems to be that from the very start of his presidency, he used transphobia as, as a drip, 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 dripping little bits of transphobia constantly throughout um, throughout his uh, time in the White House and from the initial stuff about um uh, trans troops in the Army, uh, to every sort of aspect of these tiny little sort of trans- transphobic um, attacks that have gone on from uh, uh, changing how um, the um, uh, your gender is is um, uh, allocated or, and, and understood. Uh, according to law, to some of the most pernicious ones, like not allowing uh, transgender people into homeless shelters and things like that. And then this obviously culminated, or obviously it culminated uh, to some extent in the um, law passed by Orban's government that um, to end legal recognition for transgender people in Hungary earlier in the uh, year, in May, uh, and under the sort of cover of, um, of lockdown. So against that background, it's not an altogether surprise. But I think the the real icing on the cake, really, the real sort of like punchline to why it's happened now is the Black Lives Matter movement, which has thrown all sorts of establishment um, uh, prejudices and um, things they can rely on into question. The whole status quo has been challenged with the toppling of statues and, and the reevaluation of all sorts of fundamental ideas about our society. I think then on top of that, there was the government, Boris Johnson's government was already on the ropes from the COVID crisis and the way they've not dealt with that very well, uh, to say the least. And and then the um, defiance of um, teachers and students and parents not sending their, their, their kids back to school has, has, has meant that the, uh, Boris Johnson wanted a victory and in this sort of hothouse atmosphere where everyone's stuck inside their home, I think we were the easy target, the easy target, and in a sense, within the home, we were the dog that was easy to kick.
0: Thanks, Kelly. I think you're right to highlight how, highlight how completely ludicrous it is to imply that too many people got involved, which is why they're not gonna support it. Um, so we're gonna go back to Anna now. Anna, there are also reports that the government are proposing to roll back on current rights for trans people, such as their right to use the toilet of their choice or to use women's refuge. Why do you think that is? And what would the effect on trans people be if that happened?
1: Well, um, out of the, big, the biggest contribution I think to this sort of uh, rollback has, since the um, consultation was now, there has been a huge toxic atmosphere. That's been put forward by groups such as Women's Place U- UK and, of course, Transgender Trends, which has sort of framed the whole sort of um, the whole sort of uh, reforms to gender recognition as some sort of attack on wi- on women as a whole, and generally sort of framed it as this idea that um, same say, uh, same sex spaces uh, exclusively for women are somehow being will be invaded by uh, as they put as um, they put it. Uh, male body transgender people, in order to um, um, in order to um, access these spaces for for all sorts of reasons, like such as to assault people and all sorts of things like um, all things like that. The most heinous thing that has sort of come out of what Liz Truss has said, which is sort of the removal of healthcare from trans youth, which is very 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 concerning um, because it doesn't really say what is going to happen to um, trans youth who are already in the system. As such, um, because it, she did make a point: is if you're over the age of eighteen and, tra- and trans and living your uh, living your life as peaceful as it, you're well about to go about your business there. When it comes to tra- trans youth, as we all know, that despite a lot of what people may say in terms of medical interve- intervention and things like that, um, it tr- uh, youth are not being given hormones straight off the bat. They do have to wait until six, uh, sixteen until they are given any form of hormone replacement therapy up until that point they are put on puberty blockers which of course are completely reversible and with um, what Liz Truss has said there's no indication what will happen whether like it will simply not allow more trans youth to enter these kind of services or if it will completely stop the healthcare that's currently in place for these people we have no clarification whatsoever and regards to this sort of um all these sort of theories about trans people going it will it attack uh, women, uh, natal women or things like that, or the arguments they use in these same sex spaces. Um, if, and a study that was done by the Williams Institute in 2006, it did say that 70% of transgender participants of that study face discrimination when attempting to use the restaurant, whether this consisted of denial of access to facilities, verbal harassment, or even physical harassment there. Um, and as we all as we all know, when it comes to uh, sort of attack on women's services and access to the things like refugees and things like that, the biggest threat to those um, uh, services are, in fact, the Tories. I mean, that sector has completely been cut, ravaged by cuts and austerity since the Tories have gotten in, and the, the, and um, uh, Scotland Scotland particularly has. Um, proposed to um, with, with the use of the SNP have said that they would propose to have their own sort of recognition regardless of what happens here in England specifically with Scotland's uh, women's associations including um, End Gender Scottish Women's Aid and Rape Crisis Scotland have said that d- it does not regard trans equality or women's equality in any way to be informed Competition or um, contradiction of each other, and they've had trans-inclusive services services for six years now, which basically does, uh, which you know, which does pr- prove that in many ways that like trans women are not as predatory as a lot of these um, groups try to make out here. And I just want to sort of go on to a quote that uh, was said by a member of the LGBT Tories, uh, Colm Howard Lloyd, that said this opportunity for sense uh, sensible reform has soured and created a toxic atmosphere for many trans people fearing for their safety, with Heather PO of the Labour Vice um, adding that um, this is the biggest reversal of LGBT rights since, two, uh, since Section 28.
0: Thank you, Anna, yeah, I think, you know, it's really important to emphasize how this is going to have real effects on trans people in their lives and how, you know, how safe they are in their lives and completely how important it is to emphasize that trans people are not the threat, you know, the austerity that's been implemented by the Tories is. Um, And so before we go back to Kelly, I'd just like to uh, encourage everybody who's watching to keep sharing across all social media platforms. Um, We're streaming on four platforms today, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. So if you just keep sharing the stream so that we can reach as many people as possible. So we'll go back to Kelly now. Um, Kelly, you've been very active in organising Trans Pride in Liverpool. The trans community is you know, a really broad community, but the discussion around trans rights is always brought back to um, this really narrow focus on the right of trans women. How does this impact the transgender youth that you work with, who are constantly ignored by the terms of the debate when it's framed like this?
2: Yeah, well, firstly on Trans Pride, we um, had, have had a transgender block on, or for trans women block on the uh, Reclaim the Night Liverpool march for the last number of years now. And the, um, so organisationally, we've always been very closely tied to the Reclaim the Night uh, group. And we, um, and you know, for, they did training for our stewards for, the, for our first Trans Pride last uh, year, for example, and this year they're co-hosting um, the um, Trans Pride with us, the, the rescheduled Trans Pride we've got coming up in September. Um, and so as, as such, we've always had the notion that gendered oppression and violence is, uh, is something that we're opposed for from the perspective of trans uh, people and of uh, cis women. Um, and I think that I'm you know, talking about my, the, the youths I work with, the trans youths I work with, I think particularly for the trans uh, girls that are trying to come to terms with their gender maybe, or wanting to come out, I think the the um, culture that we're living through at the moment is a particularly nasty one. And I think, you know, people sort of like talk about protecting women, but then there's these young women who are isolated and fearful of coming out and are... You know, hiding away in their in their bedrooms and not really finding the courage to come out into an environment that's so nasty. That's, you know, all those sort of things that we come to associate with that internalization of all that sort of hatred that's going on in society is there and the self harm and all the rest of it that's going on. But then I think that the, the most of the trans uh, kids I work with actually don't identify as wholly male or wholly female. In fact, they either identify as a flu- in a fluid uh, gender or as non-binary. Um, and, and they get completely excluded from the debate when it focuses solely on trans women. But even more so, this is, applies to the way that trans men are affected by the debate because trans men part of the, the, the sort of central, one of the central planks of the experience of transphobia for trans men is one of invisibility of not really um, existing in the public eye and not being and being invisible. And so actually the debate doesn't just ignore them, it actually reinforces the transphobia that trans men face um, already. But I think that also beyond that, you know, the situation that is facing uh, transgender kids at the moment in the, the current lockdown uh, state or the easing of the lockdown state is um, is worth actually thinking about as well, because obviously we've seen all the stuff about the uh, rise in domestic violence that's gone on as people have been forced into lockdown. Well, transgender kids aren't necessarily in families that are supportive of them. I know, you know a, a lot of the kids I talk to are really struggle with their family life and found lockdown very painful experience. And I think that's kind of um, goes to explain why it's such a high proportion of the kids I'm, I'm working with have actually chosen to go back to school, which is, is, is not the sort of like a common experience of, of many kids. But then even when they go back into school, They face that lottery of the same lottery they face with their family as to whether that family supportive exists within the schools as well. And there are some great schools uh, dealing with that are really trying to be supportive to trans kids and some great teachers out there um, doing brilliant things. But then, equally, there are some schools where um, institutionalized transphobia is rife. I was. where I was told by one, a couple of my kids about a school where the pastoral staff had gone out of their way to um, make sure that the preferred names of of all the trans kids was um, was on the, all the paperwork that was going out to, to you know reports and and all the rest of it, and teachers were going th- into those documents and individually changing them back. Uh, so, it, for me. Well, to, to sum up, the the uh, the beauty of doing the Trans Pride event has been to actually introduce some of these young trans people to uh, institutions which are supportive of them, and for the, for us that's been the unions, both the student unions who who have sponsored all sorts of placard making workshops, and more recently we've had the GMB and the UCU who've uh, supported uh, our events.
0: Thank you, Kelly. It's really interesting hear um, about and so before we move on um could you and anna both of you could you recommend for our viewers um any people or events from trans history that uh people might want to find out more about
1: okay um <laughs> i think i'll start i think i'll start off with this one um because um I think it's the case of we every sort of events we do come up with the same sort of people. So I wanted to sort of to bring a couple of attention to a couple of people that may, aren't as necessaries brought up as often. And they're fairly sort of new figures when it comes to it. I think Janet Mock is a very good person to um, look. She did a fantastic book uh, whose title escapes me, unfortunately, at this moment in time, a couple mm-hmm. of years ago, as well, with, uh, as well as Laverne Cox, who was... Most famously been um, involved with the uh, the Netflix series, um, Orange is the New Black, which is not a fantastic program if I'm completely honest, but the work that she does to highlight um, the trans experience is very, very, um, very, very good. And I definitely recommend that those of you who have Netflix to watch the documentary Disclosure. It is a very, very comprehensive look of how trans people have been portrayed from the beginning of sort of televised media and things like that. And it does really show some of the really deep seated transphobic I- ideas that are very prevalent in society and where they come from. So I definitely recommend. Uh, so if, if you have Netflix, watch Disclosure.
2: Yeah, well, the, the, the book that Anna mentions, um, Redefining Realness by uh, Janet Mock is absolutely brilliant. It was very important to me. Uh, in my process of coming out, um, the uh, negatively, I'm afraid, I'm going to say that, that one of the things that inspires me is that photo, the famous photo of the Nazis book burning, and I didn't realise until quite recently that the actual books that are being burned are the is the library of Dr Magnus Hirschfeld, who was the first person to really go for a systematic. Um, uh, understanding of the transgender community. And for me, it, it constantly reminds me about how our, our history has been repeatedly uh, hidden and destroyed, and so that we don't know as much about our, our communities as we should. Uh, for me, that was uh, most evident when I was trying, we were trying to do some research on molly houses, which were, are a cross between uh, tr- clubs, for trans women and brothels, which it's so hard to find anything out about online. Um, But I think the one thing that really stands out for me that is a, a part of our trans history that we should celebrate is the Compton Cafeteria riot from 1966, which is several years before Stonewall, and was it actually specifically trans women fighting with the police in San Francisco, and in some senses is the birth of the modern LGBT movement.
0: Thank you both for that. Um, Yeah, and I'd really encourage all of our viewers to check out their recommendations. So before we move on, um, I just want to announce that there's around 200 people watching the live stream so far. Um, I'd really like to encourage all our viewers to share the stream on all of your social media platforms. Uh, We're live on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Uh, Yeah, so share the stream and get the word out. Um, Okay, so we're going to move to Laura now. As I said before, Laura is the author of um, this fantastic book, which I've got right here, Transgender Resistance, Socialism and the Fight for Trans Liberation. And also the first openly trans person to serve on a British trade union national exec. So Laura, I want to move on now to some of the bigger questions behind trans politics. You know, as Anna and Kelly have described, transphobia is being used to deny trans people's rights. What are the roots of transphobia and where does it come from today?
3: Thanks Molly and thanks um, Kelly and Anna for a a really succinct and clear introduction to the problems that uh, trans people face today. On the first part of that um, that question, what are the roots of transphobia, I think the first thing to say is that like uh, racism, sexism and homophobia, socialists don't actually accept that people are born transphobic or that transphobia has always existed or that it's something immutable or part of human nature. Um, Leslie Feinberg, in their brilliant book, um, Transgender Rebels, which is another book I'd certainly recommend uh, to anybody who can get hold of it, showed that in pre-class societies, gender variant expression was very often treated um, quite differently, favourably, to the often vicious transphobia that we see in modern Uh, modern capitalism. Um, For for us, I think, as socialists, we we argue that oppressions arise and are maintained on the basis of material conditions in society, how things are produced and distributed, how profits are accumulated, how the ruling class tries to hang on to those profits, and so on. I think the second thing I'd say is that um, the development of transphobia, and actually LGBT phobia in general, was closely related to the increasing oppression and subjugation of women as class societies developed, particularly capitalism with its dominance of the nuclear family that came to be the model, really, for um, working class people who were supposed to to aspire to. Um, Capitalism relies on the nuclear family to to bear, to nurture, to socialize the next generation of uh, of profit makers, us, in, in other words. Um, Engels in the origins of the uh, family private property and the state um, in his, his 1884 book showed how women were more and more controlled and subjugated as class societies rather than the hunter gatherer and nomadic or early pastoral societies became dominant. And at the same time, you see same sex activity and gender variant behavior becoming increasingly prescribed, punished and seen as abnormal. And that actually intensified incredibly, actually, in the late 19th century. Um, 19th century capitalism as hostility to trans and gay people was exported, actually, and imposed by imperialist powers like British imperialism on colonial countries uh, around the world as part of the sort of subjugation of those peoples, the divide and rule strategies that they use. So transphobia provides easy scapegoats, really, when needed, with the potential to divide Workers and divert resistance away from those running the uh, the brutal system that uh, that we live in, and that takes us on really to the second part of the question: Where does transphobia come from today? I think there are a couple of things to say here. So the first thing I say is that I think most transphobia comes from the top, from the top down, and from the right. Um, people have already mentioned. I think Kelly mentioned the example of Trump in the United States. There's Brazil's Bolsonaro, there's what's happening in Putin's Russia, Hungary's Orban and so on and so forth. And you can think also of the religious right, um, the transphobia of the Catholic Church, various US Christian groups. And of course, it also comes from the far right and the fascists. And all of these variously promote the defense of traditional values, the sanctity of the family, nuclear family, hostility to women's rights, multiculturalism and, and so on. They promote loyalty to nation and race above class solidarity and class struggle and all this, of course, the left and Marxism and degeneracy are the enemy. Um, Trans and LGBT people are seen as undermining social order, normality and generally destroying society as we know it from within. There is, however, uh, a minority of feminists and those on the left who generally want to refer to themselves as gender critical, although they are in fact um, transphobic. And they're very vocal in pursuing trans-exclusionary policies, particularly here in the UK, as people have already said. Um, Unlike the right, though, they claim to be critical of trans rights on the false assumption that they undermine women's rights. Problem is, I think this is the basic problem, I'll end on this, really. The problem is that they actually fail to start from the basic socialist position of solidarity with all the oppressed, including, obviously, trans and non-binary people. And in practice, I think they end up um, providing some sort of left cover, really, for the for the right wing transphobes that I talked about just now, and sadly they end up on the wrong side of the history because of that. I think.
0: Thank you, Laura. Yeah, you know, I think you're completely right to talk about um, gender variant in pre class society and to kind of emphasise um, the subjugation of women and um, how you know trans people are not a threat to women. It's all part of the same fight. And so on that note, we're going to move to Sarah. Um, Sarah is a journalist for Socialist Workup, a weekly revolutionary socialist newspaper. Um, Sarah, the debate is being conducted in an explosive way. And, you know, rightly, so many trans people are furious at the way people deny their right to exist. I want to ask you why some people see trans rights as a threat to women's rights. And why do you think they're wrong?
4: Well, look, I think it's important to say that Uh, it's quite a broad church we're talking about you know people who uh, are trans exclusionary or maybe describe themselves as trans critical feminists you know they actually argue different things um, completely sometimes you know some feminists argue that because trans women have been socialized differently they have not experienced sexism and they say that the experience of oppression such an formative, important experience of being a woman that trans women simply don't understand Uh, they don't have an appreciation for what it means to be a woman Others claim uh, uh, to be worried that including uh, trans women, uh, you know, in these spaces as women, uh, weakens the ability of other women to politically organise or to defend their jobs under equality legislation, for instance. But actually, it comes down to your political analysis of oppression. So if you see oppression as something that is rooted in biology rather than wider social conditions, that actually has implications for how you organise. So, for instance, uh, a lot of feminists think uh, that gender is completely anchored to biological sex. And that is binary. People are either born uh, men or they are born women. And this cannot change throughout a person's life. Um, And They also believe that we live in a society where men oppress women. So using this analysis, it follows uh, that some feminists, some activists, think trans women not only sit sit outside the experience of womanhood, but they actively contribute to oppressing women. Uh, But for others, they argue that trans women pose a threat uh, to other women if they are part of gender-specific uh, spaces, they argue that because violence from men is an epidemic uh, proportions, trans women being in these spaces actively puts other women at risk. Uh, other speakers have talked about the way that this sort of takes the form, you know, talking about domestic violence, refuges, toilets, sometimes it comes up in prisons, and so on. But I think people who hold these views are wrong. I don't think trans rights and welcoming trans women into women's spaces puts women's rights or women themselves at risk. Uh, Let's talk about the concrete. Changes to the Gender Recognition Act don't undermine women's existing rights under law. you know, let's talk about domestic violence refuges. Other people have talked about, and I think Anna talked about how in reality, these services are threatened by vast underfunding of the sector, particularly in the last decade of Tory austerity. And this is happening in a background of a society that doesn't take intimate partner violence or domestic abuse seriously, actually regardless of who the victim is. But more broadly, I want to argue that it's wrong to counterpose the liberation of two oppressed groups against each other. Uh, When an oppressed group fights for liberation, it actively helps other oppressed groups because a rising tide raises all boats. And when the broadest possible coalition of people fight back together, it not only builds a sense of solidarity and unity within our class, but it also gives us the best chance of success. So instead of attacking trans women over the question of toilets, uh, you know, refuges and so on, feminists should unite with them to create material better conditions for everyone. Fighting together for better refuge services, for example, points the blame at the real culprits and any benefits uh, of the campaign will materially benefit women. Uh, You know, campaigning against or campaigning for safe, accessible and free toilets and hygiene facilities this benefits all women, doesn't it, you know, rather than police where the trans women are allowed um, to enter them. But just to finish, uh, trans critical and exclusionary feminists can fall into a trap um, of seeing the experience of womanhood as actually being something universal. So I've heard talk, people talk, uh, you know, crudely in the past about how menstruation or having, ch- or having children is a sort of cornerstone experience of being a woman. But many women don't have periods or have children for a variety of reasons. Such a biologically based fundamentalist view of gender oppression and womanhood threatens to erase the wide spectrum of human experience. Trans people are not a threat to women's rights, they are our allies in the important battles raging here and now against the real culprits that want to soak up division and push society back.
0: Thank you Sarah I think you're so important to emphasize you know solidarity amongst the press groups and how fighting together is is completely key and so we're going to go back to Laura now um, much of the discussion focuses on questions of sex and gender can you tell us the difference between the two from a Marxist point of view
3: yeah thanks Molly well well um, Sarah's touched on this, I think, which, uh, you know, is is, uh, absolutely crucial questions, really. Um, I mean, the fact is that despite beliefs of the country, modern scientific understanding backs the view that sex is neither simple (laughs) nor easily defined. It's certainly not correct to say, as I think some, you know, second wave feminists um, still do, really, that sex is biological and gender is cultural. And this is, I think, as Sarah said, quite, you know, it's it's too binary. It's too simplistic. It's certainly non-Marxist in its um, in its approach. Um, it wrongly abstracts um, biological aspects of sex from the social relations of power and class um, in society in, in capitalism. Um, actually, it, even just trying to define sex becomes problematic. In, in, you know, are you going to define it by uh, genes by the presence of Gonads, by secondary sexual characteristics, by hormones, or, or, or what? Um, what if these don't align? What if a body contains both male and female so- cells, as modern, uh, some modern science um, you know, uh, suggests? Sex is, is you know, clearly not purely biological. Um, in my book, actually, I, I, I try to sum this up. I'll just quote this. Um, biological sex, as well as having materiality, also has socially ascribed characteristics and values applied to it, including the ascription of detrimental values reflecting historically contingent societal sexism and misogyny, such as the objectification, devaluation and commodification of female bodies. When it comes to gender, that also (laughs) is not simple. Um, Not only can there be an infinite A variety of gender expressions, rather than just man or woman, but it can be understood really as having two elements. So there's both the socially applied element, you know, something that exists external um, to the person, such as gender roles and expectations, how to dress, how to speak, how to behave, kind of acceptable jobs for, you know, men and women and so on. But there's also an internal sense of gender self. I think, which is what we describe as gender identity, um, and actually many transphobic and gender critical people deny the reality of gender identity, um, and I think in doing this, um, that actually amounts to to an erasure of trans and non-binary realities. Um, I described um, gender identity in the book as an outcome of interactions between a person's self-perceived body their biological sex, including, in some cases, their deep unease about this, the social perception of their body in the eyes of others, social factors like gender values and expectations, and also the person's development as a sexual being with sexual attractions and sexual needs. Um, in other words, their sexuality. So it's a much more complex, um, a complex situation than um, the rather simplistic approach of some, uh, some feminists.
0: Thank you, Laura. Um, So we're going to stick with you still. Um, How important do you think the concept of gender ideology in the attacks coming from right wing politicians like Bolsonaro in Brazil is?
3: Okay. well, I mean, it's important because um, it forms part of the basis, really, of the attacks coming from the right on women. In particular, an LGBT plus people, they often reference the, um, the the supposed threat of gender gender ideology. Um, it is, it's it's actually a completely bogus concept. Um, it was dreamt up by hard right religious activists and promoted by the Vatican in the mid nineteen nineties. Uh, and since then, it's been it's been weaponized by right wing governments to um, to dissolve women's ministries to undermine international legal, legal obligations to protect uh, gender equality and LGBT plus rights and a whole variety of places. It was, it was one of the, um, the concepts and the arguments uh, proposed to undermine and uh, to ban gender studies in Hungary's universities uh, last year. It's been used to, attract trans right, to attack trans rights, including you know, the whole notion of self-identification for trans people. It's been used to mobilise the Christian right in elections in various countries uh, and so on. I mean, it's it's often used to oppose substituting the word gender for sex um, and seeing this as a kind of leftist feminist plot to undermine the family and traditional values and to erase sex as a, as, as a category. Um, unfortunately, um, some feminist and leftist gender critics I think come dangerously close to endorsing aspects of gender ideology in their arguments for trans exclusion from single sex spaces and um, in their opposition to what seems to be a cousin of um, gender ideology which is gender identity ideology um, which which you know is the claim it denies the reality really of gender identity um, and sees Transactivism as a dangerous movement that you know puts children's lives and well-being at risk, which we know it doesn't we know, we know um, that you know, trans activism is absolutely necessary and valuable and important to, to support in the current circumstances. So it is, um, it is important that we understand the origins of gender ideolo- ideology and the purposes and the purposes that, it, and, and that it's, it's put to and uh, why we need to resist it.
0: Thank you so much Laura it's really great for you to put that so clearly to us. Um we're going to go back to Sarah now. So Sarah why do you think that gender matters in 2020?
4: Well I think sometimes it can feel like uh whether you're a man or a woman is sort of the this is the diff- dividing line in society. Um I want to say that I think gender expression is important I think it's deeply felt within individuals and we support the right for people to express their gender identity however they choose and that is actually the starting point for socialists and that's where we begin uh, the intervention on this. However, I think it's useful to go a little bit deeper and to look at the kind of role that gender plays within society as a whole. So there is huge, large scale pressure in society that tells people there is a really fixed, rigid idea of what gender is. And these kind of so-called masculine or feminine traits are a result of biological differences between individuals and this begins from birth you know research shows that people hold newborn babies differently if they're told that the baby is a boy or a girl or if you look at a toy shop you kind of get pink aisles and blue aisles don't you for uh you know whether you're buying a a girl toy or a boy toy Um, and very little in between So this carries right through people's lives, you know, it shapes everything, you know, all your schooling experiences, what university courses people pick, you know, what jobs people end up in into and so on. And We are told all sorts of lies about what women are supposed to be like or behave like. And we are told that this is because our brains are wired in a certain way or our hormones rule the roost. But there is far more biological commonality between men and women than there are differences. And socialists say that ideas about gender within class society have developed as a direct result of the productive and reproductive needs of that society. Differences between men and women aren't in babies heads when they're born. They are there because they are relentlessly pushed from the top of society. And this is because the institution of the nuclear family plays a critical role in class society. Bosses and those at the top of society push back on any perceived threat to the idea of the perfect family or so-called kind of family values. It is hugely beneficial to those at the top of society that working class women undertake caring roles, both paid and unpaid. Women and men, but mostly women raise children into adulthood healthy educated and with the necessary social skills to be productive workers all this is done at very little cost to the state yeah it is the ruling class that reaps the benefit and the profits from this process so ideas about you know what a women's place in society under capitalism and class society more broadly flow from this dynamic uh you know and uh the idea and the reality of women's responsibility as primary caregivers it's not a new phenomenon uh class society created the family unit similar to how we know it today you know as class society arose whether you are a man or a woman or were a man or a woman began to matter for the first time i think it is possible to have both materialist explanation about how ideas around gender developed alongside fighting for the rights of trans people today. The the gender binary is reinforced throughout society because it helps to bolster a system where bosses rely on women's oppression every day. In other words, it doesn't come about because of individuals nasty and divisive ideas, however disgusting they are, but because of the logic of the whole system, Using this analysis, it is also possible to imagine a different world where everyone has the freedom to express their gender identity any way they see fit. So we have to battle these gender expectations and sexist stereotypes that I was talking about, but also look at a more fundamental transformation of society. This would be so far removed from class society and capitalism as we know it. Uh, you know, the society that pushes people into pink or blue boxes at birth and makes it very difficult for them to break out of it. You know, I'm talking about a socialist society where people have the choice to live without binaries and to live as they want, to live as they see fit.
0: Thank you, Sarah. You know, I think you're completely right to emphasise how gender divisions in society, you know, they just benefit the people at the top. And that's why gender is seen as so important in society. Um, So we're going to go back to Laura now. Laura how important do you think it is um, for the right of people to freely express their gender identity in the struggle for full liberation for all, whether that's based on sex, gender identity, race and so on and what does Marxism have to offer us in
3: this fight? Thanks Molly and I'm I'm going to really I guess pick up on what Sarah was saying, really, and, de- and develop that, because I think that's absolutely, uh, you know, crucial. Um, I-, I think that the free expression of gender identity is, is certainly, it's a hallmark, it would be a hallmark, really, um, of true, you know, trans liberation, um, if it's to really mean something. I think if you talk to most trans people, most um, non-binary people, I think they would say it's not enough to just be in a society where, you're tolerated or where you're celebrated, you know, once a year at prides and so on. And what we need is a society that truly respects people's gender identities and values all varieties of gender expression. And the reality is, as other people have said, that that is never going to be the case um, in capitalism. I mean, I'd suggest that Marxism, in contrast to, you know, various identity Theories of oppression that you you come across, privilege theory or queer theory and so on, which I think are problematic because they don't um, they don't uh, really address the question of class. They don't address the question of class struggle, the centrality of class um, and its importance in in understanding oppression. I think if you if if you move if you move from those theories, Marxism offers us. A powerful tool really to understand why transphobia exists um, to see it as part of the totality of capitalist socialist social relations whose purpose obviously is to maximize profit from our labor power I think Marxism can also offer us insights um, into how our oppression can be fought through collective action through building united fronts and so on um, by the oppressed and working class in general, in our workplaces, our communities, and on our streets. Um, a Marxist understanding, I think, of oppression allows us to see that while some rights and reforms might be won through struggle within capitalism, these are always contingent and threatened by crises, the kind of crises that we're, you know, we're in now, which is likely to get worse in coming weeks and months. Um, and there are always attempts to roll them back by right-wing governments, especially in times of crisis, and, of course, by, you know, threatened by the growth of the far right as well. Oppression, including, obviously, transphobia, is endemic to the capitalist system. Um, if you want to fight transphobia and you want to fight homophobia, you have to fight capitalism. If you want to fight capitalism, you have to embrace and offer full solidarity to the fight against transphobia. That, that I think, is the socialist, the essence of the socialist and the Marxist uh, position, and Marxists have a proud history of fighting for and supporting LGBT plus rights. And if you go back to the 1917 Russian Revolution, the revolution put Lenin's insistence that revolutionaries must be the tribunes of the oppressed into practice by decriminalizing homosexuality within weeks of the revolution, revolution, despite having to also fight a civil war. they introduced a new penal code in 1922 that said people's sexual behavior is no business of the state so long as no one is being harmed, which I think is a fundamental socialist uh, position. So I think Marxism offers us both the tools to understand the violent, unequal and destructive system that we live in, as well as a vision of a very different society based on genuine democracy, full equality and production for need, not for profit. But You know, I guess the kind of final point here is that resisting attacks and winning changes requires effective organisation and maximum unity on our side. Right now, that means, I think, being part of building the biggest possible campaign over the, 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 you know, the gender Recognition Act uh, amendments, linking that to trade unions and, and so on. Winning revolutionary changes requires that we build revolutionary organization, and that we need to do really urgently. It's so no exaggeration to say that you know, doing this is actually now an existential question for the working class, for the environment, and for the future of the planet. So I'll just finish with saying that you know, I think if we're to avoid the barbarism that uh, the revolutionary leader Rosa Luxemburg described as the inevitable alternative to socialism, then we need to crack on, frankly, building the biggest and most effective resistance, not just to the attacks on trans people, but to the dire situation that the whole working class faces. And that means building the biggest and the most effective sociali- socialist organization. It's an, essential, um, it's an essential task, I think, for us, that something that trans and non-binary people can play crucial roles in. So the prize, the prize is transgender liberation, but it's also human liberation in a socialist society and that is a a prize worth fighting for.
0: Thank you, Laura, that was absolutely fantastic and completely emphasises why we need a complete restructuring of society to get rid of capitalism and be able to get rid of oppression. And so I want to say a massive thank you to all of our speakers today, uh, to Laura, Anna, Kelly and Sarah. Thanks so much to all of you for joining us and to all of you at home, for watching and giving us your fantastic comments and questions throughout the discussion. Uh, We've loved reading them on Facebook and YouTube, Twitter and Instagram. Um, You know, you can keep commenting them on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter after we've ended the live and make sure you keep sharing the link to the video. Um, You'll still be able to watch it after the live stream is over. But just before we end this week's live stream, I have a few quick announcements to make. So as I mentioned at the beginning, Laura is the author of this fantastic book, um, Transgender, Resistance, Socialism and the Fight for Transliberation. I would thoroughly recommend that everybody reads it. It's, it's really, really good. Um, and you can get this book and many other really great titles from Bookmarks, the Socialist Bookshop. You can head over to their website, which is bookmarksbookshop.co.uk. There's a link on the screen there. Um, you know, Bookmarks is an independent socialist bookshop They're currently closed to the public because of the pandemic, but you can still order online and I'd really encourage you to go and support them by buying a book. And secondly, I'd like to echo what Laura was saying about the um, importance of building an organization like the Socialist Workers' Party. You know, we've discussed today about how trans people are facing massive oppression in society, but we should also highlight the resistance that's been to this. I'm sure that people will have seen the multiple protests that took place across the UK against the government's response to the Gender Recognition Act, but it's not just around trans rights where there is widespread resistance at the moment, the Black Lives Matter protests which have swept the globe, people standing up against the very real threat of climate change and how communities have organised throughout the COVID crisis. And it's important to recognise that these issues are not separate. You know the system that allows the death of George Floyd is the same system that allows 100 companies to cause 70% of climate change and it's the same system that marginalizes our trans siblings and we know that that system is capitalism and so we need to be organized to fight against it. We can see that real sustained change can't be made through parliament. Everything we've gained as working-class people we've got from taking to the streets and this is why we need a movement of ordinary working-class people committed to fighting the system head on and implementing that change that we so desperately need. You know, we don't want to have to compromise on our principles. We want to be able to live them every day. And that's what we do in the Socialist Workers' Party. So I'd really encourage you to join on the link below and get active, get organized, because that is what we need if we really want to build a better world and make a difference. And so once again, I'd like to thank all of our speakers and everyone who's been watching from home. I really hope you enjoyed this week's live stream and we'll see you next week for more fantastic discussion.